Hello! Welcome to the Bad Deals edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm joined by Anna Chemansky. Hello. And by Emily Peck of the Huffington Post. Hello. Who has written a long and fascinating article in the Huffington Post about deal-making in general and about the president's deal-making in particular. We are going to talk about that. And we are going to talk about the worst deal that I think any of us have seen in a long time, which is not anything in America. It is the Brexit fiasco, which managed to become even more of a fiasco this week, if such a thing were even possible. No one knows what's going on, including us, but we are going to manage to navigate our way through that anyway. And we are also, we really do need to talk about Jack Bogle because he's a hero. So we are going to talk about Jack Bogle, the founder of Vanguard and the man who probably saved you thousands, if not tens of thousands of dollars on your investment fees. Well done to him. Thank you, Jack. I must also mention that we will, in the show notes, be posting all of the juicy links that you have been emailing and asking for in terms of Anna's contentions about millennials. This was not just pulled out of her bottom. Yes, I swear. <laughs> there are actual links, and they're all going to be in the show notes. If you, want to list, if you want to click on those links and see for yourself, you are able to do that. So all of that is coming up on Slate Money. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working... The HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. So Anna and I have had various fights in the past about index funds and the utility thereof and whether they're systemically dangerous and all of this kind of thing. And I don't want to litigate all of that necessarily again, because we don't like to repeat ourselves too much here on Slate Money, except for when it comes to Brexit, because that's just like all we ever do is repeat ourselves on that one. Um, we will talk more about the fuster cluck that is Brexit later on. But, um, but my goal right now is quite simple, which is can I get Anna to just say something unambiguously nice about Jack Bogle, who, you know, died this week at the age of 89? Anna? Yes, you most certainly can. Wonderful. You see, this is going to be a very pleasant, happy segment because we're all just going to go, oh, Jack Bogle, he was awesome. No, he look, he brought indexing to the masses. He allowed regular retail investors to take advantage of what some other institutional investors had known for a while. And it, you know, helped. It made investing accessible, more accessible to a lot of people. And he saved millions of people, probably billions, if not more, you know, tens of billions of, mm -hmm. of dollars over yeah. there. I read one lives. stat that said last year alone, Vanguard saved investors $5 billion in fees, according to someone's estimate, which is pretty amazing. But I guess the fund, Vanguard is what, trillions of dollars? Vanguard is like $5 trillion now. Yikes. Yep. And which is, you know, a lot of money. And should we it's say, not, uh, okay, so let's. Should let's, we say who John Bogle is? I mean, I guess Jack. you're talking as 
Jack. Jack. I mean, Everyone officially just Jack. Jack. His, his official name was John Bogle, <laughs> but he was universally known in the markets as just Jack. So let's, does everyone knows, I, you guys said you've talked about him before, so everyone knows who Jack Bogle is. Tell, tell me who Jack Bogle is. He's this guy, this, this man who went to Princeton and wrote a thesis that said index investing is a good idea. Follow, you know, try, you should invest in the whole market, not just handpick stocks. And he said, um, there's the experts who proclaim to be geniuses at picking um, the stocks that go in mutual funds or it's kind of all bullshit, which now is sort of conventional wisdom. And so he pushed that for a while and he founded Vanguard, which is now a multi-trillion dollar um, company. And Vanguard is was revolutionary in two ways. One is that it brought index investing to the masses as Anna said. And the other is that it was mutualized. This wasn't actually something which Jack necessarily wanted to do. He was kind of forced into it. But it turned out to be amazing. What it means is that the company is owned by the people who invest in the funds. And there's no other fund manager, basically, in the world, which really works that way. And that really was one of the main driving forces behind the ever lower fees that Vanguard managed to charge. And one of the interesting things, one of the noteworthy things about Vanguard is that even after Jack retired from Vanguard, its fees kept on getting lower and lower and lower. And one of the main reasons why it was able to do that, and one of the main reasons why all other fund management companies kind of hate Vanguard, is because it had no profit incentive to try and maximize its own profits. It was owned by the people who invested in the funds. And so it was kind of like it had that kind of artificial advantage on everyone else, which was great. And one of the many, many laudatory pieces I read, so I can't remember where exactly I read this, and one of them was like talked about how Jack was proud that he was not a billionaire. Although I wasn't sure if he's quite proud because he also reportedly said he was a little embarrassed because he knew he was being judged by his fellow, you know, by other moguls because he wasn't a billionaire. He only was worth like $80 million or something. Yeah, he was practically a pauper. I mean, he was, and he was famously cheap too. Like he um, he would take the train early in the morning to New York for meetings, wouldn't stay in hotels. And there was something about not getting the breakfast buffet because if you go a la carte, it's cheaper, <laughs> stuff like that. Um, and I'm sure all of that is 100% true. I'm sure. Well, and- I mean, no, he was. <laughs> People had a lot of yeah. um, interactions with him. He was famous for like, you know, wrapping up sandwiches for the train ride home and that <laughs> no, kind of and, and and he was he was naturally thrifty in the same way that many other rich people are yeah. naturally mm-hmm. thrifty that's not an uncommon right. combination and yeah if you uh, if you're worth 80 million dollars that's not poor by any anyone's standards but there is no one else who has created a multi-trillion dollar asset management company who's worth that little mm-hmm. and i think regardless of what ends up you know happening as more and more money is going into passive investing. We're seeing throughout the entire industry just fee compression. And to the also- point of zero, actually. I think Fidelity actually right. came out with some funds which now charge zero mm-hmm. fees. And that's just amazing and wonderful. It's a little bit like miles per gallon in some way. Like, you know, that you don't actually get that much extra benefit from a car which gets 80 miles per gallon versus like 50 miles per gallon. Like, at some point, it doesn't really matter that much. But you know, if you're paying zero or one basis point or two basis points or four basis points. But it's absolutely normal now for people to have substantially all of their investments in 
funds which charge less than 10 basis points. And that was literally unthinkable. Even even when Jack retired, that was pretty much unthinkable. And now it's it's common. And I guess the real turning point for index funds was the financial crisis, after which people were like, huh, maybe well, just go with these index funds n- that just passively... No. Yeah, well, well, no. A lot of it. A, had, yeah, a lot of a big it, uptick. There. It, it, yes, but I mean, it also a lot of it has to do with the fact that, like in the '90s, you know, you're, you're looking at equity, equity returns that were regularly like 20. percent So when you're making that much money, no one really cares about these fees. But then equity turns, equity returns really started to moderate, and so that was really what started to make a lot of people look a little bit more closely at fee structures. So what we have now, you're absolutely right, Emily, is the, this big secular rotation, this long-term trend of people moving out of mutual funds into index funds. 30% of the market is an index fund. Moving out of um, stock picking. Like It used Mm -hmm. to be that people would subscribe to Barron's and try and work out what stocks they should buy and buy those stocks and because they thought those stocks were going to do well. Not because they thought they were very clever. This is one of the things which I've realized. But just because they didn't have any choice. Mm. It, they and, and, you know, it's an enjoyable hobby when you're in the golf club talking about, well, which stock do you think is going to go up? But the reason you're talking about it is because you kind of have to make that choice anyway. Mm. You know, your broker is going to put you in this or he's going to put you in that. And you need to make you need to think and make that decision or trust your broker or something. And it took a while but eventually people realized there was actually a better way and a cheaper way. And this has revolutionized retail investing. And it still hasn't really made it into the big institutional investors. Some of them do. Like the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund is very close to an index fund. But the really big institutional investors who more or less control like most of the market still aren't indexes. The amount of money that you see in index funds in the market is not actually a sign of the amount of passive investing that's going on in the market, because a lot of very active investors um, will use index ETFs for mm-hmm. active trading exposure. Which yeah. Bogle strategies. did not care for this. And yeah, so he, that was one of the <laughs> things he didn't like about ETFs. Mm-hmm. He preferred index funds to ETFs, precisely because ETFs are tradable. And so people are like, I bet the stock market is going up, so I'm going to buy SPX. And then I bet the stock market is going to well, go down, so I'm going to sell SPX. And you can't do that with an index fund. Well, also, it, it's it's very useful as a hedging instrument Exactly. As well. So that's why I'm very hesitant to take at face value the arguments that like there's too much indexing going on, because just look at the amount of money in these instruments like SPX. Because really, that's not passive investing. That's a lot of that, if not most of that, is active investing. Yeah. So at at this stage, I think, you know, it doesn't seem to be particularly dangerous. I think it does offer a really good product to a lot of retail investors. My only thing, can I just say one thing? Just one, I promise. (laughs) All right, just one. Is that I sometimes feel like in in these discussions, there's this idea about like, oh, these stupid active investors. And I'm kind of like, okay, passive doesn't work (laughs) if you don't have active investors. You need people doing this work. So just just making that clear. But as you have, I mean, in terms of retail investors, if you have so many Americans, you know, in 401ks with their retirement plans, things like indexes makes just so much sense. Oh, I completely agree. And and if you're going to, if you're going to like, yeah, exactly. They make so much sense. They're more secure. It's for the long haul, et cetera. It seems so perfect for that. Well, not necessarily more secure. And and, and 
and Anna's absolutely right. You need active investors for the price discovery. Mm-hmm. Like, if you just have a bunch of passive investors, you, you don't get the price discovery. You don't actually need that many active no. investors to, for the price discovery. Like, <laughs> so long that. as they're more than, like, I don't know, 20% of the market, they will, they, they will be the marginal price setters. Um, you know, passive investors are not marginal price setters. They, they just pay whatever the, the price is. Um, but in any case, uh, Jack Bogle, you, you revolutionized the market. You were that rarest of beasts, which is someone who came up with a financial innovation that was actually good. And he said never call it. He didn't like the word product. I know. I actually laughed because <laughs> I just amazing. used product and I was like... Yeah, yeah. And, and also don't use the word product because it's it's a horrible word. We all try. We <laughs> what all try else do you want to call it? <laughs> a thingy. Yeah, a thingy. It's a thingy you buy. <laughs> it's, it's, no, he called it an index fund. Index it's a perfectly fund. good thing. You can call it a fund. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and... 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Okay, so we are going to keep on talking about Brexit. It's going to be like a weekly thing. I, it, might actually, <laughs> it might actually be a weekly thing. I, I I did get a couple of requests on Twitter saying like, Felix, can you just talk about Brexit are every day? Are you making day? that up? <laughs> Um, and and yeah, I was like, no, I'm not going to talk about. He's Brexit making it up. It's like Trump saying he talked to other presidents. <laughs> <laughs> um, but this was a very big. This was the biggest week yet in Brexit. You know, at least since the original referendum, um, the meaningful vote finally happened. We were meant to get the meaningful vote in December, and Theresa May put it off for a few weeks because she thought she was going to lose. Turns out she was right. <laughs> Um, I've gone back to the 1840s and I cannot find a government defeat this big or this devastating. It's basically never happened in the history of the UK that the government has had this many of its own party rebel against it in the lost. I mean, that makes sense because no sane government would even bring to a vote something which they realized they were going to lose so enormously. But obviously Brexit is kind of unique. So what we wound up was a 230-vote loss for Theresa May. It was like 202 to 432, something like that. Um, 432 MPs just saying, no, we don't want this ridiculous deal of yours. And it makes sense because if you're a lever, um, her deal basically keeps you wedded to a bunch of EU institutions which you hate. And if you're a Remainer, her deal takes you out of the EU and so you hate it. And so basically no one likes this deal, so no one voted for this deal. And so now that deal is off the table. It's not going to happen. Um, and so now absolutely no one knows what is going to happen now. Like the, There is no majority for any particular thing, although there is almost certainly a majority for anti-no deal. Like There is almost <laughs> certainly a majority for like, we do not want to just crash out without a deal. The deadline is looming. Even, yes. even, but Theresa May is saying, like, I can't promise we won't do that. And it does, but she could, couldn't she go back to the EU and ask for an extension? Some, that's, that's one of, there's like four options. It's like they could crash out, they could ask for an extension, they could do the people's vote, so called, 
or um, well, that's she could come thing. up with like a new a new deal. Maybe there, there's almost, I don't see it. how the EU would agree to an extension unless they were extending it to a referendum, to a second mm-hmm. referendum, people's well, vote. Um, what why she can they delay? do, hmm? they delay a, because that's always what the EU does. <laughs> but but <laughs> it's you their need favorite tactic. There are twenty seven of them, and they do need to be unanimous. And trying to get twenty seven of anybody to agree yes. on anything is very difficult, and especially when they're naturally fractious European countries you know I don't think it would be I think it's possible they would agree to a delay Um, much more likely they would agree to a delay pending a a people's vote which would actually clear things up the really good news if you want some good news is that there was a European court ruling which is that Britain can just unilaterally repeal Article 50 it can just unleave and it doesn't need the EU 27 to agree to anything. If they don't want to delay, if they just want to completely scrap the whole thing and say, never mind, we're staying in, they can do that. And just ignore the will of the people? I mean, they voted for this. So the idea is that the government would almost certainly not do that (laughs) without also calling of people. So because, you know, what what you wind up with then is this kind of thing where you like you repeal Article 50, you have another referendum. And then if the referendum, if the second referendum says leave, then you trigger it again. And it's just a nightmare. And that really pisses off the Europeans. Yeah. (laughs) But the chances are that a second referendum would not be for leave. All of the opinion polls indicate that Remain would win. There are one and a half million new voters who weren't eligible to vote last time, who are by definition very young voters and the young all want to remain. The old people who voted to leave, a lot of them have died off. Plus, it's increasingly obvious that there is no workable version of leave anyway. So I'm reasonably optimistic that if there was a people's vote, then it would vote for remain. That's what you think is the best option. Well, obviously remain is the best option. No, but the voting for it is the best option. Yeah, I think that if you're going to remain, um, having gone through this ridiculous referendum process um, once, the only way you can really credibly reverse that is by going through the whole ridiculous referendum process a second time. Don't ask me what the question should be, because that's a very difficult question. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do think just to play devil's advocate here a little bit, like, look, I imagine all of us, and I probably think probably a lot of people listening, would would like the UK to remain, ultimately think that's probably the, the best option. But I, I do think it's not um, invalid to say, look, there was a vote. We don't agree with it. But if then you go back and you're like, we're just going to do this over again. We're going to hold another vote, which is kind of the idea of like, we didn't like this outcome, so we're going to keep doing it until we get the outcome we that, like. That, the Europeans do this all the time, Yeah, by but the way. I guess my concern is that, and I, as I've said, like, I ultimately don't think this is the best argument of the world, but I do think it's somewhat valid to say you could then make a lot of people in the UK really start to think, you know, democracy isn't real. My vote doesn't matter. And you could push a lot of people into the hands of another far-right candidate or just make people not want to be involved in the political process. There's There's a concern. There's There's absolutely no doubt that a bunch of leavers would be very upset if, if, like, you know, the government suddenly said, oh, wait, take back seats. I want to do it all over again. The fact is a whole bunch of people in the UK are going to be really upset no matter what happens. And there is any number of precedents for you know, people trying referendums two, three, four times. How many bloody Quebec referendums have there been, you know? And no one's like, this is a violation of the democratic will of the people. It's it's just something that happens. Yeah. And, and especially 
given that the people who voted to leave um, had no idea what they were voting for and were voting for very, very different things depending on who they were. Like some of them were wanting to be like this beacon of free trade in the middle of the world with free trade with everyone. And some of them were like, no, we just want to be little Britain and cut ourselves off from everyone. And a bunch of them just wanted to cast a protest vote against David Cameron, who they hated. And, you know, and it was a mess. There was a good in one of the pieces I read at the end, someone went up to David Cameron and said, do you regret calling for this vote? (laughs) And he said, no. And then he went off jogging. <laughs> David Cameron is, is, is the real villain here. I've, I've heard he really people yeah. try and blame <laughs> Jesus. Um, Junker and various other types or, or, th- or, or even Theresa May. But she was dealt a basically impossible hand. Yeah. I mean, she played it very, very badly. badly. <laughs> um, but there is no majority. And also, I mean, we have to mention that the other complete dreadful incompetent here is Jeremy Corbyn, the leader yeah. of the opposition, who is just being so unhelpful and all he really wants is to become prime minister and he doesn't really care about Brexit. Well, I think he's he's more or less outed himself as a kind of hardline Brexiter at this mm-hmm. point, which is just Wait, that, dreadful. Wait, that, that's what's going on? I, this, what? I thought he wanted a people's vote. No. 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 He, no. Slate money listeners, no. He does not. There are Labour MPs and there are Tory MPs who want people's vote, and there are a hell of a lot of Scots Nats MPs who want uh, people's vote, but Jeremy Corbyn and Theresa May are weirdly in agreement on in opposing a people's vote. I'm sorry, I don't have much else to say about Brexit. It's just <laughs> a manufactured crisis that just gets yeah. worse with every news cycle, and I don't understand. And I think, unfortunately, anymore. as it continues and continues and continues, that even if it eventually is settled and they don't leave, the UK is still going to have suffered quite a bit. And it's going to take a while to really make up for like, like lost consumption, lost investment. And I'll just, also just the fact of so much time, money and energy is being put towards this and not being put towards anything else. Right. It's a little bit like, you know, how, how none of us are reading any non-Trump news anymore because Trump just drowns out everything else. It's, it's exactly the same in the UK, only it's Brexit. And it's not just reading the news, it's the entire economy is oriented towards trying to navigate this extreme uncertainty. And that's not a good place for any economy to be. Yeah, it's very similar. I was thinking what's going on over there, similar to how we're dealing with the shutdown now, where it really it was man- a manufactured crisis that is putting a halt to d- conversation and to work on so many other things. It's just a waste of everybody's time, as you just said. So, and money. And money, yeah. Billions of dollars. It's so a real tragedy. It's a failure that. of democracy, really. So talking about failures of democracy, um, Emily, you have a huge piece up on Huffington Post about the negotiator-in-chief and how he has managed to navigate the shoals of international diplomacy and various other um, major affairs of state. And um, having read it very closely, I think I come to the conclusion that you think he might have been able to do it a little bit better than he did. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, I mean, everybody knows, I mean, we're what, like 35 days into the shutdown now. And if you didn't realize it already, we all know now that Trump is not good at deal-making or negotiating, because he would have maybe perhaps made one already. So I got curious, like, what did the people who actually study deal-making and negotiation think of Trump? 
And then I learned that there's a negotiation journal put out in part by Harvard Law School and that they're about to devote an entire issue to Donald Trump looking at different aspects of not really studying him because they're all in agreement. Um, he's he's pretty bad at this, but sort of like studying the ripple effects of his bad deal making with trade and, you know, um, and here at home, too. Um, and it all sort of the root of it all is this paradox that Trump sells himself as as a deal maker, but he's clearly terrible at it. Anyway, so I wanted to find out like exactly what does he do wrong? <laughs> and there's a lot starting with <laughs> turns, um, out. turns out my discovery was Trump bad. Um, so, yeah, I mean, his his probably his biggest fatal flaw is he sees everything as win lose zero sum. Um, and uh, in actual real world deal making or negotiating with people who have equal amounts of power or some leverage against each other, as we're seeing play out now with Pelosi, you can't just say like me win, you lose because the other person's going to say, no, that's not that's not how it's going to work. And um, and the other key factor that we're seeing with the wall deal is that most sophisticated negotiators wouldn't come to the table with a single demand. Again, that's part of the win-lose um, philosophy. You come and you have, a, even if you're negotiating for a raise, for example, you come to the table and maybe you want a raise, but you could also, you bring in like vacation time or, you know, better benefits or a new office or work from home. Like you have a lot of balls to like juggle around, a lot of different asks to ask for. Um, so those are sort of like the two big things um, you that he's doing You've got to be able to wrong. do the horse training. You have to horse trade. You have to bring a lot um, to the table. And another mistake Trump makes is he treats everything one-on-one when um, even now during the deadlock, he's not – one way to break the deadlock would be to for either side to bring in like more people to negotiate behind the main players, um, behind the scenes. When, in fact, what he does is he just cuts off all of his negotiators at the legs. Whenever they agree to anything, he's like, wait, I'm not agreeing to that. Right. He he doesn't have the surrogates that sometimes can come in and kind of like de-escalate tension and, you know, do side deals. Um, No one trusts trusts that anymore. And that's sort of the third piece. No one trusts this man. So one of the more interesting things that I learned or realized or something from reading your piece is that Insofar as Trump ever was a good negotiator, and there was a time when he did deals which were not truly atrocious, Mm -hmm. um, that was largely because he actually was willing to delegate, and he basically gave that job to Roy Cohn. Mm -hmm. And Roy Cohn, turns out, like, for all that he was an evil man and a bully and, like, you know, no one's shedding any tears over, like, Mm -hmm. him... um, was actually capable of negotiating and get, getting things done. Yes. Roy Cohn and he also had um, this guy, George Ross, negotiating for him as well. And like Trump would come in later and, you know, sign things. But he wasn't the one, you know, making there's there's um, a book out now by a guy named Martin Latz that really like delves into all the deal making. And there's a review in this negotiation journal. And the stories were so um, brutal. Like one one of these guys, it might not have been Ross or someone working for Ross in a negotiation, wanted this female lawyer to go away from the other side. So he basically just belittled her and belittled her, trying to make her cry and like lose her shit while they were talking. And um, that finally happened. And the her client fired her and he got a new um, counterparty to come in. And that was like a pretty... Those were their common tactics. Like they were bullies. They were really hard charging. And, and it and it did work for them. But it wasn't Trump really doing it. It was these other guys. I also thought it was interesting to think about it maybe a little bit from the other side, too, in thinking of what 
Pelosi and Schumer and the Democrats can kind of like how best should they negotiate with, you know, this 800 pound gorilla that like because one of the things that I'm sometimes concerned about is I think as you know, because look, we all we all hate Trump, but it's like if we want to get a deal done, we can't humiliate him because he's never yes. going to agree to anything. And I think that's one of the things that in negotiation that we talk about is you want to try to figure out a way that both sides can save face and both sides can say that they kind of won, even though one side usually wins a little bit more. And I'm, I'm a little curious about how this can really occur in this instance. And this is this is very reminiscent of the Brexit thing as well, which is that. Jeremy Corbyn, if he wanted to be constructive, could be constructive and say, yes, I am willing to work with the government to put together some kind of a deal that doesn't involve crashing out of the EU catastrophically. But he has seemingly no desire or incentive to do that because what he really wants to do is to humiliate the government and to become the next prime minister. And I think that when you are in a two-party system where I think there is a certain amount of zero-sum. You know, there is like only one party can have the White House, only one party can have a majority in Congress or in the Senate. Um, then humiliating the other side really does have strategic value and it becomes hard to not want to do that. Yeah, and I think taking Trump out of the equation for a second, I think we've been building up to a moment like this. We saw with... Um, the Supreme Court fight, you know, during Obama's time when Republicans really were digging in and playing a lot of zero sum, like we won't let you have a win kind of politics. And there was less there was less negotiating increasingly. And someone I spoke to said to bring Trump back in that his biggest win so far um, since he's been president hasn't been a negotiation victory. It was it was Kavanaugh and it was just Trump and McConnell just sticking to their to what they want. But they were backed into a corner and it, it looked bad for them. And Maybe another president would have withdrawn his Supreme Court nominee under so much pressure as as he was with this Kavanaugh nomination, but they stuck it out and they won. And like the, the kind of lesson they take away from that is, you know, is that that tactic works. But in that instance, they also had the votes. So at the end of the day, they didn't actually have to. And I think this is another thing when you're thinking about, you know, the government being zero sum, like long term, it's it's like it also is, well, is your goal to remain in power or is your goal to actually accomplish parts of your agenda? Because if it's the latter, then it's not zero sum. The idea is that but we know that Trump doesn't. Really well, I know he doesn't think that. I, I mean, with him, I kind of feel like, you know, he's but I'm, I'm more thinking about like, how did the Democrats approach this? Like, how how do we actually come to a solution? Yeah. I mean, I, I, most people are rational people are saying, you know, they have to figure out some kind of border security package that includes something Trump could call a wall or at least could call a victory and reframe as like heightened security at the border that will solve the crisis. And I don't see why. That wouldn't be a win. I mean, maybe Ann Coulter wouldn't like it, but well, most this is, of the country would. This is something that actually that was interesting, though, because it seems like earlier on in the process, before we actually got into the shutdown, Trump looked like he was willing to kind of cave a little bit. And then the conservative media came out and just started saying all these things. And then that was when he really dug in his heels. And so I guess because he does just seem to care about that more than almost anything else. Mm-hmm. It does seem like not only is Congress more willing and governments more willing to be dug in and zero sum now with Brexit and Trump and whatever, but then there's also in the background like these media outlets that are also kind of very hard line in their own ways as well. And and just, and the media outlets reflect genuine hard line polarization among the electorate that if you look at Republican support for the wall, it has been going up steadily Mm. From, you know, relatively low levels to almost unanimous support now. And 
conversely with the Democrats. The, you know, you actually had a bunch of Democrats supporting the wall a, f- a few months ago. Now, basically none of them do. And so the electorate has become polarized. And the one thing that Trump has managed to do, um, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily call this a negotiation tactic, but the one thing he has on his side is the base. He can absolutely credibly threaten that if any, you know, Republican politician doesn't give him what they want, what he wants, then they will get voted out because the ba- the base is, is, is very, very supportive of him. One other thing I, I learned, um, just to move off politics, well, not really move off, but um, hardline tactics like Trump is using used to be kind of normal, but then... Um, after World War II was over, there was like this rise of negotiation strategy um, as the Cold War came up and people wanted to avoid nuclear annihilation. And then at the same time, that was kind of bubbling up. Um, There was more and more litigation going on in the courts and sort of like a a glut of court cases that people wanted to figure out an alternate way to resolve. And then at the same time that was going on, the divorce boom happened in the 70s. And Divorces are very acrimonious, um, although not Jeff Bezos's divorce, of course, which we haven't talked about yet. But um, and so that was like another prong to it. So out of all these swirling prongs came this like army of experts that wanted to make, you know, negotiation and deal making very rational. And at the end of the day, it's not it's not rational, right? Background of like two world wars, right? Right. All of this happened with world wars in living memory when people were like, well, we can see what happens when people really get stuck in yeah. and won't negotiate yes. and won't deal with each other. And anything is better than that. And now what we're seeing is that with Brexit and here in the U.S. is a terrifying return to or a, a, a terrifying movement away from that rationality and that want and desire to avoid these kinds of intractable conflicts that lead to war, right? It's kind of like another sign that like the post-World War II era is in trouble. Although I also wonder like how much of that like in business in reality was always the case that we we had a a lot of this kind of scientific negotiations Mm because I'm just thinking of like you have a lot of firms who like you know they want to get their way they will throw money at lawyers until they get their way Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. you know that's that's not exactly uncommon Mm -hmm. over the last 20, 30, 40 years. But the lawyers are way more sophisticated. Oh, I mean, that's the thing. That, that, I think this is what Emily is saying, is that you throw money at lawyers to negotiate a deal, and the lawyers you're throwing money at are not Roy Cohn anymore. Like, that kind of lawyer doesn't really exist anymore. They're going to figure out how to make you think you're getting what you want. I've noticed that with dealing with, like, sophisticated PR machines at bigger companies. Like, they're so nice to you, but they're kind of being jerks and they're trying to just get you to do what they want, as opposed to at the less sophisticated companies where they just yell at you, which is counterproductive. Today I learned that yelling at people is counterproductive. (laughs) (laughs) This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. 
Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. What else am I going to learn? Let's have a numbers round so you can, I can learn something from numbers. Um, Anna, what's your number? So my number is a little bit of an ode to Jack Bogle. <laughs> um, so it is 3.7 million. So a man in Saudi Arabia was arrested for defrauding people of $3.7 million because he claimed he could use magic and sorcery to double their money. And when I heard this on the news, I thought that the obvious joke to make was that that is what quite a few money managers have also historically (laughs) done. Um, But sadly, BBC did not make this joke. But I thought it was. (laughs) Well, at least it made it onto Slate Money. Yes. I will uh, double your money, dear Slate Money listeners. If you if you give me three million dollars or more, I promise to double it um, within what? How long? Um, th- th- this particular person, I'm not sure exactly how long he he said he would, but my guess is pretty quick. Wonderful. Yeah. I mean, whatever. Like, I'm going to have to come up with a time frame which like gives me enough time to just leave the country, yes. right? And just like, yeah, you can't be like seventy five years. Seventy five <laughs> years, I'll double your money. <laughs> Um, my number is 40, which is a Brexit number. Um, (laughs) (laughs) this is Liam Fox when, when, uh, article 50 was triggered and, and he was in the government and he said one second after midnight, after we Brexit, after, after March the 29th, 2019, one second after midnight, we will have 40 free trade deals signed with like there are, the EU has forty free trade deals with all loads of other trading partners around the world: Canada, Japan, Korea, United States, you name it, right? And Liam Fox said, well, "Okay, the easy thing to do is to just go to each of those forty counterparties and say, listen, you know, we have this relationship with you right now. Can we just continue this relationship post Brexit, and nothing changes, and we will have all of those deals signed before we even Brexit." Um, you will be su- shocked and surprised to hear that the number they've managed to get signed, the number they're going to be able to have signed by March the 29th out of those 40 is zero. <laughs> Shocking. Shocking. Wow. Yeah. Um, yes. I My mean, number? What's the um, number? Um, I brought in two, but I'm going with 1500 Okay. Dollars. Okay. That is the amount of rent a Bay Area man is paying to rent out a house for two cats. Two cats. They Wait, live wasn't, live in the house. I feel like there was a wealthy man who bought a place, an apartment for his cat. In they're the called so, they're called Louise and Tina, and they're his daughter's cats. And she's in school, and she can't have the cats at school, so he needed a place for the cats that was near her. Um, and the, a friend of his or an acquaintance had like a little um, I forget what it's called, a little house like separate from his own house. You know, it, it has a bathroom but no kitchen, so the cats live there. I, I remember there was a story about the U.S. representative to FIFA. Do you remember this? No. He, yes. This he had. Um, <laughs> this was like not that FIFA is massively corrupt or anything, but the U.S. representative to FIFA, the the you know soccer association, um, had a apartment, I believe, in Trump Tower. If it wasn't Trump Tower, it was very similar to. It was one of those huge condo buildings i think it was trump tower and he had a big apartment in trump tower and then he bought a second apartment one floor up for his cats 
I mean, it makes sense. Cats can be... Smelly. No, it really doesn't make sense. We have two cats. <laughs> $6,000 a month Trump Tower apartment for his cats. Wow. Okay, so wow, th- thank, you to, thank you to Max. Louise and Tina are to, jealous of that. Max has like the internet as his fingertips. <laughs> $6,000 a month Trump Tower apartment for your cats. And oh so... My God. In comparison to that, fifteen hundred dollars a month it's in the pretty, Bay Area seems easy. No, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a seventy-five percent discount. Yeah, yeah, and two cats. <laughs> they can't. They don't want to. You don't want one cat because they get weird if they're alone. Sure. I think that's it. Thank you, guys. <laughs> that was a fabulous Wild. Slate Money podcast. We're going to have a Slate Plus segument on what? What's the Slate, slate Plus segment on? It is going to be on mandatory paid vacation. <gasps> Bill de Blasio. If if you know who Bill de Blasio is, you should listen to Slate Plus this week because we're going to talk about him. He is the mayor of New York. He has an idea about mandatory holidays, which I am, spoiler alert, all in favor of. So we're going to talk about that in Slate Plus. Otherwise, many thanks to all of you for listening to Slate Money this week. I have to say <laughs> there's been nothing better than reading all of your emails about female Doritos and whether a crunchless Dorito is a good idea. And we still don't know whether Indra Nui is going to be the next president of the World Bank. It's still possible. And if she is, will she have a Dorito strategy? <laughs> will, will, will she, will she t- talk about snack foods in the developing world? Keep the emails coming. Slate at slate.com. Many thanks to Max Jacobs for looking up factoids about cats and everything else he does on this show. And we... We'll talk to you next week on Slate Money. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.